The views and discussion expressed on this program do not necessarily represent those of the hosts of the program. WMKV, Maple Knoll Communities, WLHS, the Lakota Local School District, or staff and management. The information and advice presented are educational in nature and not intended to be taken as specific legal, accounting, or other professional advice. Always consult with your own legal, accounting, or other professional before making any investment. Welcome to Real Life Real Estate Investing, a show to help you gain financial freedom by investing in real estate. Brought to you by the Real Estate Investors Association of Cincinnati and the Ohio Real Estate Investors Association. You're listening to Real Life Real Estate Investing on WMKV, WLHS, and the Maple Knoll Radio Network. And now your host, Vena Jones-Cox. Good afternoon. I am Vina Jones-Cox, and this is Real Life Real Estate Investing, where we are trying, some weeks struggling, to be your public radio source for everything you need to know to get started or get further along in your real estate investing career. And it's question and answer week. Um, The first question and answer week that I'm going to have attempted on three hours worth of sleep just don't get into your head that it's a good idea to drink a Coke Zero at 10 o'clock at night because then like really bad things happen and you find yourself up at four in the morning going, I have, a, I have to do a radio show tomorrow. What am I going to do? But i um, going to do my best today to answer your questions about whatever is important to you today in the world of real estate investing. There's a couple of ways to get in touch. One is pick up the phone and call. is the number here in the greater Cincinnati area or from anywhere in the listening world, 877-772-9658. Alternatively, you can use our email address, which is askvina at gmail.com. That's A-S-K-V like in Victor, E-N-A at gmail.com. Any kind of question is open today to what you know whatever you want to hear what's what we'll talk about don't really have a topic it's question and answer week just like it is on the last Wednesday of every month now folks who subscribe to real life real estate by going to realliferealestate.com and just filling out that little form that says want more real life real estate uh, get a heads up on things like question and answer week and are able to uh, send in their questions early, which I know is more convenient for some folks. There's a lot of people probably driving home right now, can't can't get to their email. Uh, and one of those folks is Dr. Scott, who is from the Indianapolis area. And he says, Vina, I do not currently own any rental properties. This is primarily due to the fact that my J-O-B slash profession, and I, I'm not, that uh, uh, you folks who love your job, I'm not I'm not somebody who has to spell job. I understand that there's people who like their jobs, but he actually wrote J-O-B. He said, my J-O-B slash profession does not lend itself to doing property management and no one else in my immediate family would be interested or able to fulfill this ro- role. I am a healthcare professional in the Indianapolis area. I've done several flips in my spare time and I'm interested in owning rental property, which would require a third party to do property management for me and be successful at this form of investing. How does one go about finding and or evaluating a good or great property manager? 
Uh, if you have any leads on a good local property management company, it would be extremely helpful, but not expected. And um, then he says he will not be able to listen to the response when I'm on the air, but that's okay because you can listen to it on the podcast at realliferealestate.com. Uh, actually, Scott, I do have a direct referral for you, which I will email to you because, um, you know, this being public radio, we don't get on here and like recommend a bunch of products and services and courses and stuff like that. But, uh, the more general question of how does one find a good property management company is a really interesting one because as you may have heard, I suspect this is probably the reason for your question, Finding a good or even great property management company when what you own is single family homes can be quite a challenge. And the reason is that the way property management is set up, at least by most people in this country right now, the best interests of the property manager are not necessarily aligned with the best interests of the owners. So uh, property managers have to have real estate licenses and real estate licenses come with fiduciary duty. They come with, you know, the duty to, to act in the best interest in and protect, et cetera, your, um, your clients. But at the same time, the way payment is structured with property managers makes it so that many times what what is going to make them the most money is not what's going to make you the most money. For instance, most property management companies handle repairs and maintenance. That's one of the reasons you want them is so that you don't have to uh, do that sort of thing. If the property management company charges you for maintenance by the hour, which many of them do, Generally, what they do is they have a staff and the and the and they upcharge the staff's time. So you know if the if the uh, painter is making twenty dollars an hour, they're charging twenty five dollars an hour. Many of them have a flat fee, no matter who is looking at your property. So it could be like somebody really highly skilled, or it could be a more low skilled person, and you're going to get the build the same twenty five dollars either way. So is it in the property management company's best interest? to minimize the number of hours their people spend in your house when they're making money, the more time is spent and the more money you spend on repairs. Other property management companies just upcharge you. So they, they'll hire an independent contractor. The contractor charges $1,000. If the contractor charges $1,000 and the upcharge is, is 20%, you actually pay $1,200 for the repair. That means if the same job could be done for $1,000 or $2,000, it's actually in the property manager's best interest to get the job done for $2,000 because that way they make 400 instead of 200. So I can, the, the, the list of things like that are endless. Um, I had a family member who had hired a property management company to manage an apartment building and uh, the apartment, the apartment manager charged her to run all the ads. And you know, that's normal. You, you don't, you know, you pay to, advertise your property. But what was happening was when people would call about that building where the units rented for 630 a month, he would redirect them to another property he managed in the same area where the units rented for $800 a month, thus getting the higher commission units filled faster. 
do, do you see the problem here? Now, if, if I had a property manager sitting here next to me, that property manager would probably say, but that's not true. We don't do stuff like that because then we'll get fired. That's not my experience. My experience is that most owners who hire property managers hire them because they want to be hands off. They often don't even open the mail that the property manager sends every month to review what's being done to the property. I know people who have literally lost tens of thousands of dollars on properties because the property manager has done things like charged them to put on a roof that never got put on. So there are a lot of bad guys in that industry. Okay, I'm not going to say a lot. There's bad guys in every industry. There's bad guys in the doctoring industry. There's bad guys in the realtor industry and the real estate investing industry and the landlord industry. It's probably not more true in the property management industry. Of course, the ones I hear about are the bad ones. I don't, I don't, people are really happy with their property managers. They don't typically come to me and say, let me tell you something. I love my property manager. So this is what I would tell you. Um, Take a close look at what all their fees are. Get referrals from preferably several of their other clients. Make sure that you are paying attention to your reports every month, that you're paying attention to what money is and isn't going into the bank account. Be slow to hire and quick to fire. If you find a good one, obviously stick with them forever and ever and ever. But if you get one that there's even some whiff that stuff is not working out the way you think it's supposed to work out, uh, dig into that fast. And if it is a problem that they can't explain and won't solve, uh, move on, find another find another manager, which also means, by the way, you need to look at what the contract says about whether or not you can fire them in any quick period of time. So good luck with that, Scott. Um, We will be back right after this. It's question and answer week on Real Life Real Estate. Give us a call at 877-772-9658 or send an email to askbina at gmail.com. Welcome back to Real Life Real Estate Investing. I'm your host, Vina Jones-Scox. It's question and answer week here on Real Life Real Estate Answering questions via phone at 877-772-9658 or email at askvina at gmail.com. Let's go ahead and go to the phones. Line one, Kathleen calling from San Antonio. Kathleen, welcome to Real Life Real Estate. Thank you. I am a property manager. I have a small company, and so I wanted to address the question on how to find a good property manager. Yes, please do. <laughs> you are right on target, right on target with your answer. Really, in property management, it's my philosophy that there should be no upcharges for repairs. If I hire a repair person to come and fix a plumbing issue for $100, then I'm going to charge the owner $100 and attach that receipt to the monthly statement. That just makes sense. So you should no owner should be in the dark about when repairs are done, how much is charged. Owners should be given the option of when or if they're called for repairs and for approximately how much dollar amount. Uh, some owners may want to know, be kept in the loop more than others. It's just a good thing to do for the owners. Uh, let that uh, Keep the owners posted and always send them the, the exact invoice for the repair amount. I would say interior inspection should be offered at no additional charge once a year. Drive by every six months just looking for things like trash in the yard, overgrown yard, unauthorized pets in the yard, essentially. Uh, a renewal fee is okay each year for good tenants, but not like a month's rent or half a month's rent, maybe $50, $100 renewal fee. You just got to be careful not to, be, to have a, hire a property management company that's going to fee you to death. 
Um, and then if tenants are there less than a year, say they had to be evicted, there really shouldn't be a finder fee of a, a month's rent or a half month's rent to put in another tenant. That just gets too expensive for the landlord. And, and it's, it, always check, it, it's also another uh-huh. way in which in which the property manager is kind of at odds with his owner because uh, I know several property manager property managers here in our area who only give like a six month guarantee on the tenant. In other words, if I put him in, I guarantee they'll last six months, or I will re-rent it for free. But if they last seven months, you got to pay me again, and that just my my yeah. head explodes every time I think I about like that, that because if you put somebody in my house who can't keep up payments for seven months in a row for seven months in a row you did not do your job (laughs) exactly exactly and 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 property managers don't have crystal balls and can do thorough background checks nevertheless the more background checks they do the more careful they are the more due diligence they do the more likely they are to find a good tenant very true kathleen do you uh manage single family homes as part of your business i do are you willing to move to cincinnati If the price is right, <laughs> but I do always try to keep prices reasonable for the landlords because having been a property owner, we managed about 20 of our own units. And so I, I know it from the side of the landlord and I empathize with the landlords and how many expenses they have and how hard it is to clear a buck when you own rental property. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now, it, out of curiosity, the the kind of the standard... Uh, fee here in Cincinnati for management of single family home is ten percent of the gross rents, and then there's a, there's a rent up fee of a month or half a month, and then there's these other fees I talked about. Is that the same in San Antonio? Yes, yes, it is. But I would search for a property management company didn't that didn't have what you said last. All those other fees, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. it just makes it so tough. Always check to see what a property manager will charge for eviction. If a property manager has to post a three-day notice, they should not charge for that. Just post the notice. If they have to file the eviction, don't they, they shouldn't have to they should not have to charge for that. If they have to go to court for an eviction, maybe a couple of hundred dollars would be reasonable. But if they want to charge five, six, seven hundred dollars to actually do an eviction and then charge the owner, that's over the top. Well, Kathleen, you are a you are a breath of fresh air in the property manager world you said you said you opened by saying i'm a property manager and i thought now see she's gonna she i'm gonna get it now because she's gonna tell me how hard it is to be a property manager and how every dime that they get no matter how they get it is is a hundred percent you know earned money and uh, it's just it's it's unfortunate that the way things are set up does not put the property manager and the landlord on the same side all the time and they need to be on the same side and I tell you, it works. It does work both ways because if I get an owner who doesn't want to pay for repairs, gives me a hard time, I just fire them. So my owners are wonderful. They trust me, and I'm trustworthy. Amen, amen. And 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 that is that is a problem. And and actually, we should address that back to Scott again. You can't blame your property manager if he can't get a unit rented that you won't pay to exterminate. You can't blame exactly. your property manager. If, if he can only get bad applicants on a place that's filthy and you won't pay to clean it. So, and they you, want more than market rent. Exactly. So you have to, it is a, it is a two-way street. And I think, it it, I think if more property managers took that, um, took that uh, philosophy to heart of, I'm, I'm going to charge a fair price. I'm going to 
do my job. And if you don't do your job, I'm going to fire you instead of taking it out on everybody else. Because I think sometimes the reason property managers get cynical and start upcharging and upcharging and upcharging is they've got the three or four bad guys that they're working with that are kind right. of costing them. I mean, it, it, like 20% of your clients are going to take 80% of your time, right? That so, is, and that's so true. Yeah, if you, that's so true. If you ditch that 20%, you can probably afford to manage properties and still make a make a good profit for yourself and treat your landlords right. Yes. You know, when a property needs a bunch of repairs, I think it's okay for a landlord to charge a modicum amount, 20 to $30 for more than one or two trip charges to the um, charge to the property because they're meeting the painter, they're meeting the plumber, they're meeting the roofman, they're getting estimates, they're doing this because it, you know, for if you're if I'm making $70 a month, and I'm having to go over 10 times, it's just, I can't even make up for that all year long. Mm-hmm. So I think a trip charge may be in order mm-hmm. if it's if it's reasonable. Um, well, and, and expecting a property manager to handle a major rehab, that's oh, really... Oh, yeah, no good, don't, yeah. Don't, <laughs> well, that's really, that's really kind no. of outside the job description of a property it manager. Is. And it is. I, I used to work with one who was good enough to, because I've owned houses for so long, that although I rehabbed them when I bought them, it's now 20 years later and it's time to rehab them again. Right. He would, would, you know, property would go vacant and he would come to me and he'd say, look, that house, it needs everything again. And then he was actually good enough to handle the subcontracting on that. And he got, you know, he got paid for it, but that's, that's outside the scope of what most property managers can or will do. Takes you out of the liability. Mm Mm-hmm. Of if what if the painter does a bad job? Well, who's responsible? Oh, you know it's mm-hmm. so yeah. Property management does have its boundaries. <laughs> yes, it definitely does. All right, Kathleen, I very much appreciate your call today. I think you. Thank you for all you do. I think you've. I think you've uh, helped uh, sort of bring some balance to that to that discussion, and uh, appreciate you. Go get some rest. Thank you so much. <laughs> Thanks, Kathleen. <laughs> Uh, you're listening to Real Life Real Estate Investing. It's question and answer week. And I don't know why it always surprises me when people actually listen to what I have to say. I mean, doing a radio show is weird when what you're used to is standing in front of an audience where you can you can you know see people reacting and laughing and frowning and being bored and all that sort of stuff. I'm just sitting here looking at Mike. And Mike always looks bored. So it's it's a little bit like having a conversation with yourself and then you know somebody somebody comes up to me on the street and says hey i heard your show the other day that was a great interview with dave peters and i'm like you heard the show i mean i don't i don't know what <laughs> i do not oh man that was that was that was that was just creepy he just started too much eye contact in this little in this little room uh so anyway it's question and answer week here on real life real estate and uh, we're taking questions by phone at 877-772-9658 or via email at askvina at gmail.com. Welcome back to Real Life Real Estate Investing. It's question and answer week on Real Life Real Estate. And we're taking your questions by phone at 877-772-9658 or via email at askvina at gmail.com. Now, folks who stay in touch here on Real Life Real Estate uh, generally know about all of this way ahead of time. Like we send out emails in the morning saying, here is what's happening on Real Life Real Estate today. And if you have questions, here's where to send them. And 
Uh, I often walk in here with questions like this one from John in Cleveland. He says, Dear Vina, do you ever wholetail or have you heard of this model in the wholesaling space? I was recently doing acquisitions for a company and they were doing wholetailing. Basically, they would get a property under contract, then list the property on MLS in hopes of selling it to a retail owner-occupant buyer. Once the buyer's agent would submit a contract for their client, we would have the seller sign a novation agreement along with a seller disclosure and a lead contract. We would record a lien on the property, and in order to get paid for this deal, we would give the title company a lien release document and receive a lien release fee. Also, my boss would do any repairs that were needed or things that came up that didn't pass inspection, but it was very minimal rehab, ideally under $5,000. Have you ever wholetailed a deal like this or used this model? I wanted to know your thoughts on the exit strategy. Okay, so John, I have some very, some very detailed thoughts on that exit strategy, but let me start by saying that the term wholetailing is one that I hear it pop up at different times in different parts of the country, and it has different it has different meanings to different people. Typically, the way I have heard the term used is an investor finds a deal at a close to wholesale price, closes it, then puts it out as a possible purchase for uh, owner-occupant buyers. And often there's there's a little bit of like prehab in there, you know, you might you might buy it and clean it out so that, you know, it doesn't smell bad or you might, you know, paint it. And in in the current market where starter homes are getting older and smaller and uglier because there are so few of them that homeowners who are in that starter home price range are having to buy properties that need some fix-up in order to get a house at all, that can be an extraordinarily profitable strategy. The thing you just described, though, is almost word for word a strategy that was described to me by the Ohio Division of Real Estate as being illegal wholesaling. And let me tell you what the what the what the point here was. In a typical wholesale deal, you have a property under contract, and what you are selling is your interest in that contract. And the 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 legal argument that attorneys around the country have made about why you don't need a real estate license to wholesale a property when what you are doing is putting the property under contract and then selling the contract is that you you are not doing that for another person. And the definition of what you need a license for in almost every state in the union, every state that I've bothered to read the statutes in, says that what you need a real estate license for is for selling something for another. In the kind of wholesaling I just described, you are not selling a house, you are selling a contract, and you are not doing it on behalf of the buyer or the seller, you are doing it for yourself. It's your asset. You are selling it to make a profit. When I asked the division the question, what would you consider to wholesaling to be illegal without a license? Like what, what kind of deal would you say was illegal without a license? The one they described was one where 
the buyer put the property under contract. So that's the investor, that's your, your boss in this case, put the property under contract and then sold it to another person by stepping out of the deal and getting paid to step out of the deal. Because at that point, what is it that you're selling? You're not selling a purchase contract. You are basically you are basically putting together the sale of a house and getting paid, which is if, if you're a real estate agent, you can do that. As long as it's disclosed to everybody, you can do that. But I get the feel that maybe this was not being done either openly or under the auspices of a broker. So the problem, as the division described it to me, is that at the point at which you are listing, quote, your contract in the MLS and then stepping out of that contract and what's actually being sold is the house, you would need a real estate license to do that. Now, maybe your boss has a license. I, you know, this is not a question I was able to ask you since you sent in an email. But I would think that if your boss did not have a real estate license, this, this would be extremely legally problematic. And if he does have a real estate license, it could still be problematic because it's not being done out in the open. He's not, he's not, he's not saying, hey, Mr. Seller, I'm listing your property. He's saying... I'm going to buy your property, and then he's recording this lien, and yada, da, da, da. So I don't know every detail here. You haven't told me every detail, but this is not a model that I would use or recommend that anyone else use, unless it was 100% disclosed and the wholesaler doing it was a licensee. And then at that point, it basically becomes what's called a net listing, which is discouraged by the National Association of Realtors, but is not illegal And that is a listing where I say, hey, Mike, you want $60,000 for your house. And so let's make this deal. Anything I get for it over 60, I get to keep. That's that's a net listing. And that's sort of what's happening here, except you've got this whole complication with the with the lien. So I don't like this. I don't I don't like what you're describing here. Um, Actually, personally, I don't care because. I don't understand why contracts between individuals who are sane and of adult age and are not drunk or stoned at the time at which they sell the contract need to be regulated by a licensing bureau. I understand why they need I don't understand why we need rule of law. I just don't understand why we need licenses to do deals with each other. But Uh, I think that it could potentially cause problems and I would never recommend to anybody that they do it. So um, I'm sure that wasn't the answer you were looking for, but uh, yes, I have, I have heard of wholetailing. I have myself uh, put houses under contract at wholesale prices, closed them, done a little bit of work to them, put them on the MLS because I knew they would sell to a homeowner for more than they would sell to an investor for, but not the scenario that you just described. So uh, it's it's a question and answer week here on Real Life Real Estate Investing. Taking questions uh, via email like that one at askdina at gmail.com or at 877-772-9658. A question from Monica. She says... 
I have a self-directed IRA and looking to invest in notes or something that requires little of my involvement. What options are available for a $20,000 investment? Good for you for asking, Monica. There are investments in the real estate field that can be made in in the $20,000 range, you know, a little less, a little more. They are not necessarily the traditional investments that somebody who had, say, $100,000 to play with could make. Like, you're you're probably not going to make a hard money first mortgage with that $20,000, and you're probably not going to buy a performing existing first mortgage with that kind of money. And you should be hesitant to buy a non-performing loan with $20,000 for the simple reason that it costs money to get non-performing loans re-performing. But there are options. You could potentially do something like a repair second. You could buy a partial on a performing mortgage, which is, or, or even a performing land contract, which is, you know, not going to be, it, it's not going to be knock your socks off interest rates. It's not going to be you know, double-digit interest rates, you're probably going to get 8 9% on something like that, but it's sure, sure better than letting it sit there in the IRA account earning nothing, right? The, the thing that I want to warn you against is something that I have been thinking about a lot over the last few weeks, and that is that you shouldn't, you shouldn't be so motivated to make the investment that you don't sit down and take time to learn the ins and outs of the investment. Now, you might be thinking, what's the big deal? I'm buying a partial on a performing loan. Okay, so what if the loan stops performing? Do you understand what your rights are in that situation? Do you understand what your remedies are in that situation? Do you understand what the documents you're being handed say about whether you can step in and try and make it reperform or whether you have to sit around and wait for the actual loan holder, the guy who's got the, you know, the remainder interest to do that? Uh, do you understand the asset that the note is on? Because, uh, you know, this is a little bit of an extreme scenario, but I could find a $20,000 house and I could get somebody to sign a note that said they owed $50,000. That would not that would not be difficult at all. I could I could absolutely find somebody who would agree to pay me $50,000 on a $20,000 house if I let them pay it at $250 a month, right? If I then turned around and sold a partial on that. So so I come to you and I say, you've got $20,000. Hey, I'll sell you the next X months worth of payments. And then the loan defaulted. I might not bother to reperform it because I already got all the money I'm going to get. Like I, I, I got the $20,000 that that house is worth from you, not from my buyer. So you have to understand how to evaluate the underlying asset, how to tell if the person who is selling you the asset is even telling you the truth about it. You know, is it really occupied? Do you know how to find that out? So I I assume that you want to keep your $20,000. I assume that your number one goal is to get that money back if you invest it. And your number two goal is to get the return that you had hoped to get. I assume that it would be a big deal for you to lose that $20,000. 
So I'm going to say, keep your antennae up for investments. But when you hear about one, research how the investment is supposed to work before you dive in with both feet. I've been considering this a lot lately because I'm I'm actually going to be doing a seminar here in the next couple of weeks about how private lenders can make sure that the people they're loaning their money to are competent to do the deal and pay them back and also are intending to do the deal and pay them back and also are, um, you know, the deal itself really protects them. Because I have just heard so many, I've heard so many sad stories about people who have lost their, what, whatever their nest egg is, they've lost it to either con men or people who didn't know what they were doing, or it was just an unfortunate situation, but they weren't properly uh, covered in that situation. And it's easy to get those covered. Okay, so um, I'm going to take a quick break. When we come back, we've got three other emails lined up at askvina at gmail.com. So if you have a question, it's time to get it in. 877-772-9658 or askvina at gmail.com. Welcome back to Real Life Real Estate Investing. It's question and answer week taking emails here at askvina at gmail.com or your calls at 877-772-9658. As usual, Real Life Real Estate listeners are keeping me on my toes. Lots of different questions in a lot of different areas. And uh, one just came in from Michael, who says, can you please comment on transactional funding and on free transactional funding? And I actually had to Google free transactional funding while I was, while we were on the break, because that was the first time I had heard that uh, particular term. And I, and I, my first thought, Michael, was scam. Was somebody, somebody's out there offering free transactional funding, but in order to get the free transactional funding, you have to buy their $10,000 course on transactional funding or something like that, which is not free. It turns out that's not what it is. Uh, Free transactional funding is something that is being offered to wholesalers by hard money lenders if and only if the ultimate buyer ends up using that hard money lender's funds to close the property. So what's happening in the case of free transactional funding is you've got seller A, you've got wholesaler B, and you've got buyer C. And wholesaler B is, for whatever reason, wants to close or needs to close the the deal between him and A before he sells to C. Typically, a transactional funder would step in and would wire money to the title company so that B, the, the wholesaler, could close with A, the seller, and would only do that at the point at which C's money was already in place. C's money, C's money was already at the title company. Everything was signed, ready to go. Then the transactional funder wires the company, the the money to close the first transaction to the title company, and is immediately paid back from the second closing, which is called the B to C closing between the wholesaler and the buyer. Apparently, some really smart hard money lenders have come up with a way to market to wholesalers, which is freaking brilliant. I'm actually I'm actually very impressed that some folks have come up with this idea. And what they're saying is, we won't charge you the wholesaler for the funding for the A to B transaction 
as long as C, the, the, the second transaction between B and C, is funded by us as a hard money loan. Why would they do that? Because hard money loans are extremely profitable, especially in parts of the country where um, property values are high and therefore the loans are high. If you are a hard money lender and you're collecting a f you know, five points and 15% interest on a $200,000 loan, that's 10 grand, baby. What do you care about the... 1500 bucks you're going to make off of that transactional funding deal in the middle if you're making 10 grand just in just in points on the back end loan. So the free transactional funding has has a string attached which is perfectly fine. That's what capitalism is. You know, you you got I got something you want and you're going to pay me for it. Um so it's a cool idea. Uh I would definitely I would definitely try and hook up with some of these hard money lenders that do the free transactional funding. Just remember that you cannot force your buyer to use that money. So if, if the buyer, if the end buyer does not use the hard money lender's money, then you are going to pay for the transactional funding. All right, question from Tom via email. He says, you've been asked this question and answered it many times. So maybe you should go back and listen to the podcasts then, Tom. Uh, he says, who should be the trustee and who should be the beneficiary in a land trust? The underlying property owner must be the beneficiary and can do so using an LLC. But what other ways can the same thing be accomplished other than with an LLC? And who can be the trustee, especially if you have no one you can trust? Should that be an attorney? Wow. Okay. So a lot of... A lot of a lot of embedded questions there. Um, the beneficiary of the land trust should be whatever person or entity is intended to take the benefits from the property owned by the trustee. So if it's you personally, you're the beneficiary. If it's your LLC, you're the the LLC is the beneficiary. If you have some other entity, like an S corporation, or I, I've heard of trusts where the beneficiary was another trust and all kinds of weird combinations, but most typically the beneficiary is going to be the the company that the company or name in which you would own the property if it wasn't in a land trust. If that's your LLC, it's your LLC. If it's you personally, it's you personally. If you don't have someone that you can trust to be the to be the trustee of a land trust for which you are the owner, you have a couple of options. Option number one is you can be your own trustee. You could be the trustee of a land trust that was owned. Sorry, where the beneficiary the beneficiary was your LLC. That is called a failed trust. And the reason that it is failed is because it, it sort of um, fails to do the thing that land trusts do, which is separate the, the owner, that's the trustee, from the person who's getting the benefits, which is the beneficiary. If you are your own beneficiary, you have failed to separate those things. Therefore, it is a failed trust that doesn't make them unenforceable. So... 
One option is you can be your own trustee. Another option is you can hire a trustee, and that would typically be an attorney, but be aware that hire means you are going to pay. The one attorney I know who understands land trusts and is willing to be the trustee on the land trust is um, 150 bucks a year, I think. I mean, and it's not it's not a one-time fee. It's every year that my name is out there on the public record, I am going to charge $850. Now, I suspect that most years he doesn't have to do much as trustee. I mean, maybe sign a piece of paper or two. He's not going to come to you to do that, by the way. Uh, the time that he would really have to do some work is if you sold the property, because as trustee, he would be the one who'd actually be selling it. So I think uh, those are your two most probable options. Your third option is to go make friends and find somebody that you trust. Um, Email from Jess just saying, I'm listening today, streaming your show at work. My clients love listening on Wednesday evenings while they're here. (laughs) Well, that's fun. Thank you for that uh, email, Jess. And if you have any questions, there's about, oh, I don't know, a minute or two left to get the questions in here uh, to Real Life Real Estate and have any chance that I will actually be able to answer them. So um, let's see, a question here from Nick. I want to say Nick is from Nashville. Uh, He says, I need some help with follow-up and a CRM. In other words, a a contact database to manage things like leads and private lenders and tenants and all that kind of stuff. He says, I'm having growing pains. I need a better follow-up system on calls and resend lists for follow-up mails. And I'm not sure how to do this. And I'm not the most tech-savvy person. What do I do? Nick... I'm not a very tech-savvy person either. I spent 20 minutes last night trying to figure out how to make my ninja ninja before I realized that it wasn't plugged in. I have a, have a tough time with software and, and websites and all that stuff that seems to come really naturally to some people. But one of the things that I've discovered in the last few years is that if you have something that you want set up for you, and even if you want to have it run for you, there are tons of people who do know how to do that and like it and enjoy it, and you can pay them to do it. I would suggest that whatever CRM you are considering, because there's a bunch of them out there and there's a bunch of real estate specific ones out there, you first go to a VA service, one of the one of the online services through which you can hire VAs, and you enter that as a search criteria. So let's say let's say we had a CRM called Real Estate CRM, I would go to one of the one of the online catalogs of VAs and I would enter real estate CRM and see how many people were saying that they could help me set up my real estate CRM and that they could manage it for me because it's amazing how specific some of this VA stuff is. Like right now um, I'm having my database moved into a very robust but extraordinarily complicated from my perspective anyway uh, system that does emails and it takes money and it you know if 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 I send Nick an email and he clicks on the link it will send him a different email the next time than if he doesn't click on the link I mean really really robust I have no idea how to set that thing up 
But guess what? I was able to hire somebody who doesn't even work in my office to do that because she has done it many times and she's an expert and she is working her way through it and hopefully it will be done really, really soon. That's what I would do. I, I, I wouldn't even like, don't don't sit around and kick yourself and try and learn something that's kind of outside of your wheelhouse hire somebody else to do it. It's not going to be that expensive. It'll get done that way. It'll get done correctly that right way. If they're any good, they can then train you how to use it. Or since you primarily seem to be interested in using it to make sure that follow-up emails and whatnot are being done, uh, it is by setting it up, they will probably set up uh, they'll probably set it up in such a way that it just reminds you when your follow-up emails or your follow-up postcards or whatever it is you're doing are supposed to be done. So thanks for the question, Nick. Um, I, I feel you. I understand that uh, not everybody is super good at that technical stuff. I am amongst them and um, I would just hire a virtual assistant. So uh I think that's it. I think we are done with the question and answer week for uh, March and um, looking forward to being back next week with more information to put you on the path to financial independence through real estate investing. Until then, happy investing. Happy investing.